Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this episode of 1202 Human Factors Podcast. This time we're going to be doing something ever so slightly different. It is some work that we did quite a while ago on wearable technologies, but this is all around the architecture of wearables. We aim to be looking or exploring the idea of wearable technology and how we think it needs to evolve in the future. But first things first, some parish notices. The Ergonomics Conference with the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors the conference is April next year, but if you're wanting to put a paper submission in, then the submission deadline is the 1st of November. And at the time of recording this, that's less than a month away. So if you're wanting to put in a a paper, a long paper, a short paper, a poster or workshop or conv- a discussion piece, then you've got about f- less than four weeks to get that sorted out. Other bits, I've had some really good feedback and some really cool conversations with people who've emailed me and the like around some of the stuff we talked about already and that's really fantastic thank you very much for the information and the constructive criticism and we hope to um, build on that and work on it in the future like i said this time we're going to be looking at the architecture of wearable technology and what do we mean by an architecture this is an idea that came around um, a couple of years ago now and it was to look at the idea of wearable technology in the same way as we develop other platforms and so a platform is basically anything that combines a whole bunch of systems together. So from the military perspective, it's a tank, it's an aircraft, it's a ship. And the whole point is that actually the platform itself carries a lot of systems together and, and, and they work together. And the data works together on, on a single data bus or multiple data buses, but they can plug sensors in. Really what I was looking at was saying, right, well, a lot of the wearable technology at the moment, everything from Google Glass all the way through to Fitbit, through to uh, through to Apple um, Apple Watches and the like, they're all largely working independently. So surely the the way forward in a lot of this is we want to use a lot of the data that's that's produced by wearable technology, but we want to compare and contrast with other data because uh, we we're all going to be wearing multiple multiple sensors because all wearable technology is a cluster of sensors. So we want is is there any mileage in treating the body as a platform? This ended up being a, a white paper a few years ago, actually. Then that led into a few other bits and bobs. Really, it was exploiting the fact that wearable technology, whilst there's a lot of wearable technology out there, it is still relatively immature. What I wanted to do was see if we could shortcut the idea of having to go through a whole lot of painful development and actually get to the idea of the the platform as quickly as possible by trying to provide industry with a bit of focus into areas that we thought needed development. The first thing, though, is to look at, well, what is wearable technology? I think it's very easy to get lost uh, without, without some boundaries around it. And so the definition that we come up with to enable us to progress was technology that is used on or close to the body. And the key phrasing in there is that is that is used. At the end of the day, you could be wearing a laptop in your rucksack. So technically, it's technology that you're wearing. Therefore, that's wearable technology. But it's the whole using of it that is that is quite key. But even then, it gives you a whole broad range of things that you could play with. We we pushed it a bit further to say, well, what what are the boundaries? And so we come with with the four levels, four levels of wearable tech. 
And you start off at the small, smallest bit, which is embedded. So anything that is embedded into the body that you can engage with. So things like you can get pacemakers and things now that have um, readers, but it's technology that's, that's embedded within the body. And you can have intimate wearable technology. Now, that can go one of a number of ways, but if we sort of suggest maybe like this, the smart contact lens that's, uh, that people are trying to produce, something that is not immediately obvious that you're wearing, some t- some types of prosthetics could be a wearable technology, um, but uh, but that is intimate. The next version is mounted, so that is using the the body as a, as a host. So things like smart watches and and that type of thing, uh, very much of the the mounted. I think the vast majority of wearable technology comes under this category. Then the 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 end of it is technology that is that you can carry, so you either using your hand or that type of thing. And that's the external boundary, and that's, that's things like your smartphones and maybe tablets as well at a, at a push. Personally, I tend to think that tablets drew outside of the boundary of wearable tech because of what it is, but mobile phones themselves, uh, smartphones are getting bigger. Really, the boundary of the mobile phone size was becoming you know, people's pockets to be able to carry them in. So they made pot jeans pockets bigger. You know, the, as technology evolves, then this is a, a, a fairly fluid definition, but it helps me sort of bound what I'm talking about. So when we're talking about these idea of wearable architectures, generally on most platforms already, there is an idea of a data architecture, a data bus. And the whole point behind the data bus is when you had aircraft of old, if you wanted to put a new sensor onto an aircraft, you'd have to have a certain power supply fitted that. You'd have to talk about how the data was going to be delivered to the user or wherever else they needed it. Basically, the, the platform would have to, or the vehicle would have to bend over backwards to try and provide the that very specific power supply and that very specific data passageway. Whereas now, on a platform, they generally have a a sort of a bus, a cable going all the way around. That any sort, any sensor or anything that requires data or, or power plugs into, and that works in a predefined way. You you can put whatever sensors you want on there as long as it interfaces in the way that's been prescribed. And that really opens up everything to allow that data to be shared and interpreted and used by any other sensor on the system. And I think the this is where we need to go with the idea of wearables as well, because actually, if we have a data bus, then the transfer and storage of data becomes a lot easier. And they're kind of the two key hitters at the moment. When we talk about power, all of these devices that we wear, they all need power to keep going. There's very few out there that are self-generating right now. How are we going to keep all these things powered? So the power generation, the power transfer and power storage, because batteries themselves are still quite big, is, is quite key. But then there's a third element of this, and this is how we deal with social aspects of this. So what is the what are the social blockers and enablers and basically the social architecture? So we're talking about things like interaction and, and real-life usage. So to hit the the data element first, and this is really uh, has all come about through the evolution of the digital native. In the last podcast, I spoke about how digital natives and digital immigrants were different, and how the the idea of the digital native was very much around people who were always really demanding of of data all the time because they had this this idea of be, everything being on and available. Really, the the wearable technology is really pushing uh, very highly towards the digital native and as the we get more and more used to this then the appetite for data is just going to become more and more but for wearable technology it's actually the collection and transfer of the data that is absolutely key so if you're wearing technology 
to measure your heartbeat, to measure your whatever running you've been doing or whatever exercise you've been doing and that type of thing, then actually you need to get that data off whatever device it is that has been measured. It needs to be interpreted in a way that is then useful and then offloaded to a cloud service because it's, it's uploading it into some sort of meaningful service that actually adds the value to your individual data. With that becomes a whole lot of issues around your personal data security and and how you deal with other people being able to see or otherwise uh, your data. So you really, with all this data being generated about you, you really need to spend some time thinking about what does that data mean to you and whether you want to be sharing it or not. And if you don't, then you need to be putting things in place to make sure that happens. Really, at, at the hub of our data network here around our wearables network, is, is the smartphone because your smartwatch, if you're wearing heart rate monitors, GPS trackers, data gloves, knee field comms rings, uh, anything like that, they all generally interact with a smartphone. And the smartphone acts as your gateway to your cloud services or the internet. Some just use uh, one approach, so um, through Bluetooth and things like that. Some use near-field communications. Google Glass, for example, when when that was big, that was actually, that actually used two different types. So it used a bit of Bluetooth, and you, you could actually uh, interact directly with a with a Wi-Fi or a local area network. But fundamentally, it was using that hub and going all the way to cloud services. So around this idea of data, then there are a few really practical issues from an ergonomic perspective. So you're looking at how do we transfer that data. Now, the most secure way of doing it is obviously through cables, but we don't want necessarily cables going everywhere. So you're really looking at Wi-Fi or more likely Bluetooth. All of them give you speed and bandwidth issues. But as Bluetooth becomes more more developed and becomes more secure, then uh, the, the better it becomes. We've also got to look at practical as well as personal data security. Because a lot of this stuff that you're carrying, it costs a fair bit of money. What about the um, them aspects of of you carrying that type of equipment, and and actually your your data itself is re- is intrinsically valuable to you. The next element I, I said we'd speak about was power, because each individual has on average two pieces of wearable technology. So that's either a watch, a Fitbit, a phone. The vast majority of the uh, population are carrying a smartphone nowadays and an other piece of kit, even if that is just a Bluetooth headset for the phone. But as technology gets smarter and more effective, generally then the power requirement raises. It gets it, it needs more it needs more power to be able to do the computational stuff. And so that means for the ability for us to be clever, we need to be constantly plugged in. And it's quite interesting to um, look at that because firstly we've got to look at where does that power come from? How does that power get gen- generated? Traditionally, we look at a grid-based charging. So you are constantly looking at, you get you get home and you plug your phone into into the plug socket um, of, of whatever description. And traditionally, so you're, you're looking at power stations, things like that, and you're, you're plugging into that grid. But then if we're going to be a lot more mobile, then really we need to look at doing that mobile charging. Now, the way that that is being done at the moment is largely through large battery packs so your people are taking power packs with them either small ones that you can buy from um, convenience stores now sing, almost single use to a certain extent which I'm pretty sure is not good for the environment but if you can take lipstick sized power units with you then then that gives you a quick boost and a quick charge when you need it most phones now will just about last a day or certainly a eight to ten hours of, of medium usage I certainly find that I need to charge my phone 
um, probably at least once through the day, depending on, on, on my usage. So we need to work out for if you're wanting to carry your phone around with you all the time or any or any of this wearable technology, then we've got to have some of that mobile charging now. We can either take the battery or we should be looking at things like solar, maybe kinetic generation, thermal-based generation, because let's face it, the body is just one massive heat source. The way you get that heat from is possibly a different question. The other interesting one now is obviously, I guess I've called it, platform or transport based electricity so whenever i get in the car the first thing i do is plug my phone in and, and put it on its mount for it to be because i use it uses the gps if i get into a train then i want to make sure that i've got train seat with a uh, power charging supply you now get to see more and more than with usb plugs next to you and airplanes are the same so all of these wearable technologies you're basically hijacking other people's electricity to to be able to keep them charged We've got to look at how we how we transfer that because the common assumption is that you're not actually char- you're driving this stuff. You're going to be charging that onboard battery. There's obviously three ways of doing it. You can either fast charge, you can do standard charge, which takes longer but is is better for the battery, or you can trickle charge, so something that is constantly on all the time. There is also now induction um, charging it where you can just put your um, phone or device onto a pad and it and because of the way that it, it uses magnetism it then allows in induction charge it means you don't have to actually plug anything in plus side of that is yes you, you don't have, have any cables to worry about downside is if you've got any metal on the back of it at all then your induction won't work and the reason for raising that is if you've got one of these devices like i have of having a magnetic mount of a phone in in your car then then it won't work the the, the mount metal disc will just get very hot as i found out but the induction means that you can actually we i can see developments of pockets with induction charges in them and things like that so it means it could be charging in your pocket there is really two types of charging that we do we've creatures of habit so as soon as you get in in the evening maybe beside your bed you plug in your plug in your phone in the evening um, and that charges overnight a good long charge um, or you charge it as and when you can get it. So if you suddenly spy an opportunity, so you're nipping down to the shops in your car, you can plug your phone in while you're doing that. And then the final bit is around standardization because everyone else is coalescing now around uh, micro USB or um, USB-C. Apple obviously went its own way and it has currently got the lightning, though there is rumors, rumors abound that they will be in their next iterations of phones possibly going to USB-C, which means that we have one less cable to carry around, which would be very, very gratefully received. The power and the data were really more of a systems-based approach into some of them issues with a, a touch on some of the human factors elements. But really, one of the things that really interests me is the impact that wearable technology, including mobile phones, has had on uh, on on ourselves and and it's had on society from the social side of things there's some really interesting statistics out there some of these are possibly about 12 months old now but it's they still really provide some really interesting pieces so on a health side of things 71% of americans said that wearable technologies improved their health and that's really interesting because it allows us to monitor what we're doing a lot more so and uh, the whenever you go for a run or anything like that or you do some exercise you're constantly tallying up what you've done, and then you can use social media and that to promote what you've done. So you actually get a positive reinforcement circle. And also it acts as almost an absent coach in that you know you've got to go out and do something. You take a photo of you doing it. And if somebody that is then missing you doing that photo again next week, then somebody's going to prompt you and say, well, why haven't you taken the photo? The idea of the 10,000 steps, people are doing uh, doing that a lot more. 
again using your Fitbit, using them sort of fitness trackers, you can actually count and see going through the day just what how many steps you're totaling up and things like that. So it encourages you to do a lot more than, than you would um, historically. So we can really see why wearable technology really has a really positive impact on people's health. The same can also be said for people's self-confidence. Another survey said that 46% of Brits say wearable technologies have boosted their, their self-confidence. And again, that's quite interesting because using wearable technologies to enhance your um, body image and uh, you know, the use of mobile phones on social media and things like that gives people a wider friendship circle, allows people to communicate and gets positive reinforcement for positive actions, which is absolutely brilliant. But there's also another side to this because it allows people to maybe go into places and to meet people that they maybe wouldn't have before. Maybe if you're going on, on, on a date with somebody for somebody for the first time if you get uh, then you can actually call people and say right i'm I'm going on a date uh if you haven't heard from me by such and such then then whatever and there's apps out there such as the um hollyguard app uh which is all out there for people who are in them sort of situations where they need to need to raise help and raise awareness that they might be in trouble so that means that people um, are more self-confident about doing things because they've got these systems behind them that they can do this type of thing then there's also people's attitudes to technology uh, is can be quite interesting. So one of the way that this came blatantly into into consciousness was the launch of Google Glass. And in the in the UK, when it looked like Google Glass was coming over, and Google Glass did, immediately before it actually came over here, they banned a lot of London restaurants. Banned it. The DVLA put out. Um, guidance saying that it would be illegal to drive whilst wearing Google Glass and really had terms like glass hole and things like that coming about and that was all because people were unsure of this idea of a technology that could be as a a surveillance technique because you didn't know whether that camera on the front was recording and certainly there was a whole bunch of other situations where um, Google Glass was a really interesting concept interesting wearable but fundamentally didn't have a use case nobody really truly knew what it was for but on the on the plus side google managed to make an awful lot of money out of effectively it was a very well advertised beta testing program and certainly when i was playing with um, my google glass it was an awful lot of fun but it i was obviously i was rather gutted when they um, cut the flora program not actually that long probably about 12 months after i got mine then we talk about how our smartphones really interacting or working with public situations. Another survey said that 89% of mobile phone owners said they'd use their phones during the last social gathering they attended, but they weren't actually happy about doing it. 82% of adults felt that the way they used their phones in social set- settings hurt the conversation. And that was really interesting because basically people saying that they weren't happy about doing it sort of implies a sort of level of, of addictive behavior that they're the compulsive behavior and certainly i know that uh, we can go out and and be sat there just lo- looking at what's going on on the mobile phones uh, without necessarily talking to each other and there's on the one hand it can be uh can be a bit unhealthy but then somebody else laid an argument out to me which i thought was quite convincing that if you are out in a group, but maybe there is a wider group of friends there, um, using the mobile phone as, as if you're out, if you're out in the group actually includes that wider group of friends with you as well. So it's certainly a, a different way of, of looking at it. But the amount of times you do go out and look around the room and see maybe couples or small groups of people, all of them maybe sat around a pub table or a restaurant table, actually all on the mobile phones is something you just wouldn't have seen and that way a while ago. And they're certainly not having meaningful interaction or not that we can see. Maybe they're all just texting each other. 
There is also a lot more talk around screen time and is screen time a good or a bad thing? And I think the jury's out on this largely. There's been lots of reports and, and contradictory reports saying that um, younger children using screens is, is a good or a bad thing. I think there is certainly a lot of evidence out there to say that the blue light caused by uh, by the screens is is not a great thing. And what we can do to limit that sort of interaction is something to, to bear in mind. There's a, is guidance out there that sort of highlights you shouldn't be using your mobile phone or basically any piece of technology but your mobile phone because there's lair. About half an hour or an hour before you go to bed. And certainly in the middle of the night if you've got the same habit as I have of picking up your mobile phone, if you wake up in the middle of the night to see what's going on, then... There, that isn't the greatest of habits either because the light basically it wakes you up and means you're not going to get meaningful rest now a lot of the mobile phones are reacting to that and so you'll see that there is as you go through the day and the, the the light environment around you changes so does the color on your phone and actually that is uh, where mobile phone companies are responding to them sort of them sort of bits of research and then but again the jury's out is is that enough and um, can we be doing more and then also, where do you mount this sort of technology? Where do you put it? So the most popular place for wearable technology is on the wrist. Somebody coined the term wristable. That's, you know, if, you, if you're wearing that sort of technology, it's, it adapts off a of fashion. So watches have always been worn. In fact, you could argue that, uh, sorry, that a watch was the earliest type of, of wearable technology. But it is certainly the most common place to be able to put a piece of technology. But now you're getting more on the upper arm as people mount mobile phones on the rounds for walking. You get pedometers. You all sorts of places now where people can sort of put these type of things. But it's, it is because you're more capturing movement, then you, you will see more of them on on the extraneouses of the body as well as doing um, heart rate monitoring so either either capturing some sort of pulse or, or a heart rate some chest straps and that uh, are, are also used it's how we actually integrate this stuff with with the human and it also lends itself to working out how easy access you need to that technology depending on what you're doing this also then leads you into the question about well i've got all this data and, and I'm gathering all about my health. I, I, I capture heart rate uh, data if I'm wearing a smartwatch basically all the time. A lot of people now think that sharing that health data with friends and family is, is going to be a bad thing because maybe you don't want other people to know how healthy you are or otherwise. And so a lot of that is is dependent on really how you are sharing it and what you're sharing it with. Social media, again, you can see a lot of what, what people are up to. And if, if people are into that physical exercise or, or that type of thing, then some people are uncomfortable with seeing some of that type of data. We don't necessarily need to. So really what we're looking at is that level of, of social integration with wearable technology. Because actually the, when we look at this, this the, the data that we're generating, it means that the community that we've got is ubiquitous. Your online and off, offline is really blends together um, that you're um, that you're really transmitting data about yourself and, and what you're doing and it blends it with your on online persona really how that integrates with society is really playing with um, cultural and social norms because some of the technology that you use i'll go back and refer to google glass google glass just just looked a bit silly you knew you had a camera slapped to the side of your head but then some of the other bits, you know, you were, like I said, you went to watch it. A watch is socially acceptable because people have seen watches. They're not necessarily intimidated by them. They don't see it as something else. How do you get that transition from a watch to effectively being sort of seven of nine 
a Star Trek reference there for, for people who watch Next Generation. Therefore, what we've got to work at is broadening that acceptance of technology, assuming that technology is an acceptable thing and where we want to go forward. A lot of this will depend, will depend on fashion because a lot of it is around aesthetics, but the, it's also around time and evolution because what is seen as a bit weird at the moment will go on to become the norm. And we see this time and time again with different bits of technology that um, what we see as weird and wacky five years ago, ten years ago, is now is now just it's just dumb. Where do we see this all going next? Well, there are some challenges that I think industry have got to overcome around wearable technology. And with a particularly ergonomic view around this, how do we generate, store and distribute electrical power in a way that is is accessible and is not going to kill you? There is um, we've got to be able to distribute power to the, these technologies. We've got to lower the, the power requirement on these things. What data sh- can be generated and collected and, and how are we going to look after that data? Data security is something that we talk about more and more and more, but the, we're also generating more and more and more data. And is your heart rate, for example, that you're putting into a cloud service that can then be sold off to an, another third party, is your heart rate, once it's anonymized, actually that particular to you? Some say yes, some say no, but it's it's how do we really feel about this and how should we be encoding it? And fundamentally, do we see wearable technology shaping society? We see a lot more uh, public service bodies, so police, fire, that type of thing, using personal cameras that are mounted on their bodies, so chest cams and things like that. So we are constantly gathering evidence. I mean, even dash cams in cars fall into the same element, where we're constantly gathering more and more data, either A, to look after, our, after, look after ourselves, or to even to provide an evidence base. And we can see that people's behaviours are becoming... Uh, changed because of the ability to record that data and therefore have some backup of what's been said. I still think that wearable technology is still in the early phase of technology development. I think the technologists can answer the power and data questions. So how do we develop power, more meaningful power, and and technologies that um, use less power and do you get more for less, that can store and transmit data that keeps our data safe and, and useful. But actually, the challenge for society is social inclusion. I've, I've kind of got this vision of a, of a wearable social architecture. I've got no idea what that looks like, though. I'd really welcome your feedback. So thank you, for, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found it interesting. Please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, please do leave a rating and feedback as well, because that sort of thing is really useful. A, it gives, gives me feedback, but it also provides other people with the ability to um, find the podcast in the first place. They can spread the good word, too. Tell your friends and get in touch with me. But as for now, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.